from WLRN Public Media in Miami and Florida Public Radio. This is Decision Florida. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. John Davis from WGCU in Fort Myers. Florida voters find themselves in an increasingly familiar role this election year that could decide who wins the White House. We are the biggest prize for the presidential candidates, and no one has been elected president without winning Florida since 1992. And over the last 10 presidential elections, that's the only time a candidate lost Florida but won the White House, and that was Bill Clinton. A familiar name, of course, familiar surname in this campaign, John. This year, of course, it's his wife who's fighting for Florida along with Donald Trump. Trump is in South Florida, in fact, today talking with leaders of Miami's Haitian-American community. Michael Barnett is the Palm Beach County Republican Party chairman who organized the meeting. I'm not aware of any specific policies directed towards the Haitian people as yet. Um, that's why I think it's important that he's sitting down and talking with leaders in the Haitian community to, 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 to find out what those issues are that need to be addressed. You know, John, all this really underscores the time and attention the candidates and, of course, the political parties are paying to Florida voters this fall. As the executive director of the Florida Democratic Party told us last week on this program, he called Florida a 1% state. Florida was decided by less than 1% in 2012, and of course in 2000, fewer than 600 votes separated the candidates. It puts a premium on every voter issue, every voter concern, and every voter. Eli Nektalov owns real estate agency Big International in Sunny Isles. He supports Trump and expects other Russian immigrants in Florida to vote for him as well. I believe that most of the Russians probably will vote for Trump. The reason being is that They know what he did, what he achieved. They know he's a person that likes to achieve his goals. In the Keys, Ed Burr of Key West counts himself as a Hillary Clinton voter. I think she's realistic, and I want a realistic person for president, not someone that, you know, is going to divide us even more, and I think she'll be the best. Are you one of these valuable swing voters in this swing state, or are you among the undecided, And or have you already made up your mind, and why? Give us a call here on uh, Decision Florida, 305-995-1800. From the peninsula to the panhandle statewide today in the Sunshine State, 305-995-1800 on social media at hashtag Decision Florida. Catherine Welch is news director at our sister station in Orlando, WMFE Public Radio. Uh, MFE and WUSF in Tampa are sending reporters along the I-4 corridor to get a beat on this patch of Florida real estate stretching from Daytona Beach to Tampa. This is the swingiest part of this swing state. And Catherine, in Orlando, you're smack dab right in the middle of this. So this I-4 corridor, it covers Volusia County on the East Coast. Let's start on the East Coast, Cat. Moving through the neck of the woods that you're in, Orange, Osceola counties, then to Tampa, Hillsborough, and other counties. So what is there something that unifies voters along this I-4 corridor, or is every county, every precinct its own distinct place? Exactly on both points. So yes, every county is its own distinct place, and the thing that unifies them is that they are all up for grabs. There are some counties that uh, were red and they're now leaning a little more blue. They were blue and now they're leaning a little more red. But by and large, a lot of these counties are heavily in the purple territory. All in the purple territory here, John, in in the swing state. James Homan is national correspondent joining us from the Washington Post. Asma Khaled is a campaign reporter with NPR in Washington, D.C., Ozma, you were just recently in Florida this week. When we're talking about this purple part of a purple state, is it confined to a particular demographic racial group or is it just cut across all lines? 
Uh, I would say it cuts across all lines. I've been to Florida a few times this campaign season looking at different demographic groups. And I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with the huge growing population of Puerto Ricans who have settled in central Florida. Um, you know, that is now seeing migration patterns that exceed the sort of mass migration of Puerto Ricans that we had seen to New York in the in the 50s and 60s. And so that population overwhelmingly seems to be tilting to the Democratic side, the Puerto Rican community. But I think what's interesting is, as as Kat was saying, that there are pockets of this I-4 corridor that seem to tilt one way over the other. And and I've been spending a lot of time looking at Sumter County, Mm -hmm. you know, home to the villages. It's a population, when you look at voter registration numbers, that has increasingly become Republican in the last eight years. And so while you have some places like Osceola County or Orange County that have increased in Democratic voter registration, you're seeing opposite trends in some other counties. And, and uh, James, I, I recently spoke with uh, one of the directors at the National His, um, um, uh, Hispanic uh, Institute, uh, as well as many other Latino-based organizations, and they really were talking about concerted efforts to educate the Latino vote, particularly in the central Florida area, and to make sure those folks just know how to register, know where to go to the polls. Um, uh, what messages is working with these voters? It's really amazing the extent to which there is a racial divide in the vote. Uh, Right now, Hillary Clinton is getting about 35 percent of the white vote, which is actually lower than Obama got. He got 37 percent in 2012. And so it's really not a question of what margin Hillary Clinton gets with Puerto Ricans or with Latinos, but how many actually turn out to vote. It's a numbers game. And so the the real issue when you talk to uh, the Clinton campaign is mobilization. How do you get the Puerto Ricans who support you around Orlando and the Hispanics around Miami to actually come out and vote? And uh, they're focused heavily on early voting, which starts not that long from now in Florida. So it's really all about getting people out more about more than persuading them. Absentee ballots uh, are in the mail in just a matter of weeks. Early voting starts, uh, I think, a couple weeks before Halloween, October 24th, uh, give or take, uh, depending upon if a county is going to maximize the early voting opportunity under Florida law. Catherine, let's start again in that Volusia County area on the east coast on this I-4 corridor in Daytona Beach. What is happening on the ground? You've traveled there. You've talked to voters. What messages are resonating? Uh, How are they making their decisions this season? Sure, sure. I'm going to start by giving you a little bit of background. So 25 years ago, or let's all go all the way back, 1992, Bill Clinton stumped in Daytona. He came back in 96. You know, back then it was uh, chock full of Democrats. Uh, Volusia County was a blue county. Um, Then if we fast forward, President Obama, he won Volusia County in 2008. But then in 2012, Mitt Romney won Volusia County. And over the last 15 to 20 years, uh, Volusia County has gone from blue to a little more red. Technically, there are more Republicans than there are Democrats right now in 2016. Um, but it's almost an even split. And not far behind are the no-party affiliation uh, voters in Volusia County. And, and, and that's what makes it purple. So what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing in the Daytona Beach part of Volusia County, you see a lot of Trump signs. You hear a lot of Trump supporters. The demographics back that up. Mm. Volusia County tends to be older. It tends to be whiter, has a little bit of a higher unemployment rate than the rest of the state, and it's a little less educated than the rest of the state. Let's put a little but bit of da- a... Go ahead, Kat. Sorry. Sure, sure. No, 
Sure, sure. But at the same time, Daytona is the most urban part mm-hmm. of Volusia County. It also has a historic black university, Bethune-Cookman University, that has attracted a well-cultivated black community there. They're getting out the vote. Most of those folks that I've talked to have said that they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. You also have a number of universities inside Volusia County. And, and, so, and so the seesaw goes back and forth in Volusia County. Let's put a voice to that seesaw. You spoke with Karen Gorman, a conservative in Volusia County. She supported Bill Clinton uh, back in the early and mid-90s, but uh, considers herself a Trump supporter this year. There's so many things in her past. So many things are swept under the table. It bothers me. Even though she's a woman and she could be the first woman president, I really think that this is going to be a, uh, a Trump state, a Republican state. It's Karen Gorman on the east part of the I-4 corridor. Right in the central is Orlando, and Jen is uh, on the line from Orlando. Welcome to Decision Florida, Jen. Go ahead. Jen, are you with us on the phone? Yes, I am with you. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Jen. Your thoughts. I I believe that even though um, your last caller believed that this state is gonna turn 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 on to be for for Trump, I believe it's gonna be for myself, for all my friends that I talk to, my family members, everybody that are disgusted with what Trump is the is, uh, has said about immigrants. I do believe deep inside of my heart, this state is gonna turn turn out to be for Hillary Clinton and she will win the election. Uh, Jen, we appreciate your thoughts here. Uh, James, I want to put this question to you, and you talked about turnout. There's 250,000 more registered Democrats in Florida than Republicans, 5% more Democrats than Republicans. So is it, when you talk about turnout and we talk about cross-ticket uh, uh, voting, is it that Florida voters just don't stay in their political lanes? There's been a big demographic shift in Florida. You know, traditionally, you have a kind of in the panhandle, Southerners who were ancestral Democrats, lifelong Democrats, they've been voting Republican for a long time. And recently they've started to increasingly register as Republicans. And you basically most people who are declined to state voters have a direction that they lean. They either lean Democrat or lean Republican. And so there's not as many independents as I think we traditionally tend to think. A lot of people who call themselves independents can be pretty easily categorized as leaning one way or the other. Tom, this is Catherine, if I can jump in. Um, uh, I'm hearing that about Polk County, that if you look at voter registration behavior, you've got a lot of long-term registered Democrats. But if you look at voting behavior, uh, a lot of Polk County goes for Republican candidates. And, you know, as we've seen the, uh, you know, this rise in the, the independent voters, um, you know, I've noticed in regions throughout the state that, that, that traditionally have been Republican strongholds, the NPA voters are, are kind of taking away from the Republican base. And in areas that tend to vote Democratic, you're taking away from that Democratic base. So it's, I'm wondering if you can give us any insight into what the motivations are for why people become independent voters who had previously been Republicans or who had previously been Democrats. James, what have you seen on that? Yeah, that's, it's it's fascinating, and that's I spend a lot of time talking to these voters because that is obviously the most important question. I think a lot of people, you know, left the Republican Party because they were frustrated. Maybe they were even still registered Republicans, and these are Trump supporters who felt like the GOP let them down. They may not have liked George W. Bush. They felt like they elected Republicans who made all these big promises and then did not deliver results. And so there are a lot of people who don't easily classify as Republican who are intrigued by Trump. And a lot of the 
new immigrant community, on the other hand, don't necessarily identify as obviously democratic, even though they are. And then you also have people, the Cuban community, for example, yep. as the, the embargo has, has become less important. Support for uh, right. Republicans here in South Florida. Right, James exactly. Holman, national correspondent with us from the Washington Post newsroom in Washington, D.C. Our conversation about swing voters continues next. This is Decision Florida from Florida Public Radio. From Florida Public Radio, this is Decision Florida. I'm John Davis with WGCU in Fort Myers. And I'm Tom Hudson with WLRN in Miami. So are you one of these NPA voters? That's no party affiliation, right, John? That's right. It's the fastest growing political designation here in the Sunshine State, a growing state population here, a changing economic, racial, and cultural diversity here, and fewer people tied to a political party. Boy, you, you stew all that up, and you've got a recipe for making Florida the swing state this election season. Are you your swing voter here in Florida? It is Decision Florida, 305-995-1800, or on Twitter, hashtag Decision Florida. The I-4 corridor is among the most important areas of the state for swing voters. It's home to Daytona Beach. It leans Republican, but it's also home to a couple of universities and has a sizable black community, traditional sources of Democratic support. Tyrone Brooks is the co-owner of Cutmaster's Barbershop in Daytona Beach. He's voting for Clinton. Because you can see where even before she became president, she has addressed a lot of issues in um, minorities, even when it comes with the women, black, Hispanic. She's been more hands-on. As far as Trump goes, you see him on TV, but you never see anything that he really does. Catherine Welsh, the news director of WMFE Public Radio in Orlando, joins us now along with Asma Khalid, campaign reporter for NPR. Thank you both for being here. And, Happy to be here. And, and Catherine, have you been reporting on Volusia County? How did the traditional Democratic sources of support impact things there? Well, the the thing is, is one thing that you're definitely not seeing in Volusia County are Hillary signs or Hillary bumper stickers. And everyone I talk to, why are you not seeing more visible support for Hillary Clinton? Some say that perhaps there are concerns that Trump supporters, they would be harassed by them. And then a lot of people just scratching their heads saying, we're not sure why. Some say, well, she's flooding our TV airwaves, perhaps. Perhaps, you know, the campaign is focusing more on a sort of spraying out of television ads to reach more people than really getting out the ground game. And uh, but a lot of head scratching in Volusia County as to why there isn't more visible support for Hillary Clinton there. Osma, I want to ask you about the role of economics here. As you uh, have traveled in central Florida in the past week and the weeks prior, there was a report out this week from Florida International University that found in Florida, at least the middle class is shrinking. Uh, As you look at some of the traditional uh, uh, blue-collar vote in Volusia County, you look at the retirement vote, as you mentioned, in Sumter County with the the villages there. How are kind of economics playing out in the middle of the state? So I should say most of the time when I have spoken to more working-class voters, they've been immigrant minority communities. And, you know, I have spoken to some retirees, but a a number of the retirees that I have met uh, are folks who moved uh, from somewhere up north or somewhere else in the country. So they have some level of disposable income. And, uh, you know, so I should say among the minority communities, what I think is interesting is although, you know, they may have been hit hard economically, overwhelmingly we're seeing that some of the – the issues around the economy and the working class population that translate really well for white voters just don't resonate among, you know, Hispanic voters or African-American voters. 
Let's take a call. So they seem to be, I would say, leaning towards Clinton regardless Mm -hmm. of those economic issues. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Let's take a call from Nancy in Gainesville. You're on the air. Uh, Did you say Nancy? Yes. That's me. Hi. Hi. Welcome. So, yeah, I live in Gainesville, Alachua County, and I'm voting for Hillary. Um, Right now I'm registered as a Democrat because I wanted to vote in the primary elections because we had some contested elections. And in the in the presidential primary, I was a big Bernie Sanders uh, backer. And to me, this one's pretty much a no-brainer. All of the issues that I backed Bernie for are issues that Donald Trump um, doesn't begin to address. I'm not even sure he really begins to address any issues. And Hillary, while I've had a lot of major concerns over her for the years, through the years, um, I do think she's actually showing signs of listening. And um, I have never really respected her that much before, but the more that I listen to her, even though I think we'll still have disagreements, uh, the more I respect her. And I do think she is incredibly qualified and will be a very competent president. Right, thanks for that insight, Nancy. Appreciate it. I want to go to uh, Aventura, where Robert is joining Decision Florida. Robert, welcome to the program. Your thoughts on this. Are you a swing voter? Oh, boy. Can you hear me? I get loud and clear. Statewide. Okay, go great, ahead, thanks. Robert. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm a native Floridian. I was a Democrat. Uh, Jimmy Carter convinced me to be a Republican. I'm a, I consider myself a, a, a Reagan Republican. I'm not sure if I'm a conservative Democrat or a liberal Republican now, but I just cannot bring myself to vote for Donald Trump. And as I'm one of those who's sort of uh, voting for the lesser of two evils. But, uh, you know, I wonder, I so, said, you know, when I was a kid, we were brought up uh, Honest Abe and George Washington could never tell a lie. And now it's, you know, one's a crook and one's a liar. And it's, it, it's really sad. And it, it's, you know, it doesn't give me an option but to vote for somebody who at least will be a statesperson, and that will be Hillary. Donald has none of that quality to him. You know, Robert, I've talked to a lot of voters over the past couple of weeks, and and, and some whom find themselves, I think, describe themselves accurately as you did as a kind of a Reagan Republican. And uh, uh, several of them in business have said they're going to vote, but they're just not going to vote at all for president. They're going to withhold their vote because of the choices at the top of the ticket. I think that would be a mistake. I think you have to make a choice. Robert, we appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. And wanted to turn to Asma Khalid here for just a moment. And, uh, you, you know, when it comes to the rise of these uh, non-party affiliated voters, the independent voters, how are age and race playing out? Is, does it tend to be the younger voters who are switching to independent status? So we're seeing a lot of younger voters, first-time voters, millennials, who are choosing to not identify with either party when they're registering to vote. So that's right. And then the other group that we're seeing a lot of uh, sort of non-affiliations is is the Hispanic community. And so these are people who actually are oftentimes registering for the first time, but when they're doing that, they're just not aligning um, officially with either party one way or the other. Um, You know, I think as as James said earlier, who's on the program, is that it's not as if... um, both in, the, I should say, it's not as if folks who are unaffiliated are not leaning towards one party or the other. Oftentimes, they they certainly have an inclination either towards the Democratic or the Republican side, but they're not officially making that identification in one way or the other. 
Is there a boon for the influence of the Hispanic vote, particularly with this influx of, of arrivals from Puerto Rico, considering they're already American citizens and they, they, they can come here and, and they can register to vote just right off the bat? You know, I I think that's a great question. We did some demographic modeling earlier in the year to sort of anticipate how large of each state's uh, makeup, you know, sort of what the turnout would look like based on how much of the population uh, we see in different minority communities. And we sort of came up with an estimate based on census numbers that about one in five voters could be uh, Latino this election cycle in the state of Florida if we see similar turnout numbers to 2012. That is is fairly high. It's, It's certainly higher than what it was for years ago. And as you said, part of that is linked to the Puerto Rican community. Uh, Puerto Ricans being, you know, American citizens, they can come and, and vote as soon as they step foot on the mainland. And so there, there's certainly an edge there. The other thing, though, that I have seen a lot are that 16 and 17 year olds are aging into the electorate. And so the Hispanic community overall across the country is a very young population. And so a lot of the growth is actually coming from Latinos who are turning 18 and who are old enough to vote, uh, even more so than new immigration. Catherine Welch, in Orlando, I know you've taken a look at some counties that have kind of mirror some of that uh, demographic trends, not only Hispanic, but just so also in the in the age demographic that uh, some of these central Florida counties are actually getting younger in terms of the number of voters who are registering. Yeah, that's true, especially for Orange County. Uh, well, I'll say Orange County, which is home to Orlando, and also Hillsborough County, home to Tampa, where they're both seeing, um, for lack of a better phrase, sort of the young hipster population coming into the urban cores. Uh, Orlando, uh, Orange County is the home of UCF, which is one of the nation's largest universities. I don't think it's uh, any coincidence that when Trump came stumping through in March for the Florida primary, he did st- Stop at UCF. Uh, none of most of the attendees were not young students, um, but I don't think that was a coincidence. And and I think that's what we're seeing, especially along the I four corridor in these urban cores of Tampa and Orlando. These younger voters that uh, are being courted by both parties. A couple of comments on social media here, John at hashtag Decision Florida. John writing us. Uh, I think you're seeing more independence due to two-party systems splitting the populace of fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Uh, Kelly saying, for the first time since 1984, my voter registration is no longer party-related, one of those non-party affiliated. And uh, a quick note on Twitter from Shelley saying, Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, of course, who's running for president. All right, let's take a call from Randall in St. Petersburg. Randall, welcome to Decision Florida. You're on the air. Hey there. Thanks for taking me. I am one of those NPA voters at the west end of I-4 in St. Petersburg. And as I think about our snowbird population, those people are immigrants, too. And when you talk about the changing demographics in the villages and other places throughout the state, you know, I think part of that is that when those snowbird immigrants come here, their perspective changes. So they might have brought the the mindset of Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania when they packed the car. But when they get here and they've had a few years of sunshine, their perspective on things changes. And I think that's why you find more independence. I, I know that I personally fit that category. So you think it's, it's, the, it's the change in geography, not the change in age, that's bringing well, this independent <laughs> voter here? Well, I think the two come together. I mean, the young hipster crowd, 
they may they may bring a different uh, genre to it. But I was thinking more of people, uh, let's say over fifty, you know, who are finding the sunshine in Florida, but at the same time they're finding the pressures and things that motivated them politically back in Pennsylvania may not be the hot button anymore, and the old uh, blue collar mentality may have melted away or hmm. red collar. Hmm. Randall, that's interesting. Uh, Osma, I want to put that to you. In Florida and is among the fastest growing population states in the United States. We're now number three here in the state of Florida over the past year. And we're, I think there was some new data out recently that says we're going to be, what, 25 million over the next uh, half generation or full generation or so. So population trends are very, very positive for Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, it was interesting to to hear the listener make these comments about geography being perhaps an impetus for changing voter behavior. I, I don't know that I would say geography alone is an impetus, but I guess a good example is North Carolina. Um, North Carolina is a state that I've spent a lot of time in recently, similar to, you know, it's actually become quite a, an attractive retiree hub for folks. And one of the things that I've heard from voters in North Carolina is you often have um, New England-style Republicans who move to, say, Charlotte, North Carolina, and then realize that they're actually a Democrat in the South. Uh, I I don't know which way we heard the listener saying that folks are going, but I I guess I could see that maybe some Democratic Northerners are moving to Florida and some of the local issues, maybe they realize they're more Republican over the other. But that being said, I think I don't want to diminish the importance of age. I actually think in this election cycle, we've seen very clear indicators of age being a fairly good um, predictor, I should say, of which way you would vote. And, you know, you mentioned earlier Gary Johnson. So Mm -hmm. among the younger population, uh, it overwhelmingly leans left. You know, younger voters really liked Bernie Sanders during the primary season. But I've met a number of younger, uh, more conservative millennials, people who might have traditionally been Republican who are actually saying that they don't agree with Donald Trump's uh, rhetoric, say, around immigrants or around Muslims. These are people who've grown up in a different world. Their classmates are very diverse. And so they often tell me that they are supporting Gary Johnson. I would say I've most often heard Gary Johnson's name mentioned by young, traditionally conservative millennials. Not Jill Stein for the Green Party, mostly Gary Johnson. I should say among, I hear Jill Stein among Democrats. So I'm saying, yeah, yeah, we hear Gary Johnson among the traditionally Republican leaning uh, younger voters. The swing voters there. Asma Halid is covering the campaign for National Public Radio. NPR with us from Washington. And Catherine Welch is news director at her sister station, WMFE Public Radio in Orlando. Thanks to both of you for joining us here on Decision Florida. And this is Decision Florida from Florida Public Radio. From Florida Public Radio, this is Decision Florida. I'm John Davis from WGCU in Fort Myers. And I'm Tom Hudson. So when it comes to running for public office, John, it takes mega bucks, big bucks. When you're running a national campaign, statewide campaign, even some of these congressional districts this time around, it is going to be very expensive. A well-financed campaign can often mean the difference between winning and losing. Despite all this money, following the money trail isn't always easy. There have been uh, efforts to reform campaign financing nationally and in Florida. According to a 2015 report from the nonpartisan nonprofit government spending watchdog research group Integrity Florida and the Leroy Collins Institute, Florida's current regulatory environment on campaign contributions and spending is encouraging more money to flow toward political action committees making the money harder to follow. Joining us now is the Research Director for Integrity Florida, Ben Wilcox. We're also speaking with Palm Beach Post reporter John Kennedy, both joining us from our sister station in Tallahassee, WFSU. Ben, let's begin here. 
How difficult is it in this 2016 cycle to follow the money behind the candidates? Well, it can be very difficult. Uh, We've set up a a campaign finance system in Florida that encourages money to go to the independent uh, committees and to the political parties. And many times the money gets lost. You can't uh, trace the source of the money as it moves between those committees and and between the parties. Uh, And at the same time, uh, you know, in 2013, Florida lawmakers passed a campaign finance reform, actually increasing uh, uh, limits on individual contributions directly to campaigns uh, for statewide offices. That was from $500 to $3,000 for state legislative offices and for local races. That was uh, changed from $500 to $1,000. Has that had much of an impact, uh, given that so much of this money is flowing into uh, political action committees and and, and groups that, that, that don't face? these restrictions the way that the direct campaigns do. Well, and that's the problem is when you limit contributions directly to candidates' accounts, you're encouraging the money to go to uh, other avenues where where contributions are unlimited. So contributions to political committees are unlimited. Contributions to political political parties are unlimited. And, you know, people need – they need to raise money to run elections. And so – the money flows to to the avenues that are unlimited. Ben, let me ask you: um, Who are the donors? Who are what do we know about those individuals and organizations that you can trace the money in this election cycle? Well, the, typically they're uh, uh, corporations in, in Florida uh, or wealthy individuals that have an interest in influencing public policy. So they're going to. But make, that's no different uh, than any other election cycle, right? So, are we seeing any new sources of, of dollars, or is it the same old sources? It just uh, just the avenues are different. I think just the avenues are different. Different. We're seeing the same. It's coming from the same old sources. And how about on the individual side, the donor class? As Florida's population has grown, has grown more diverse. Is the donor class mirroring that? No, I don't think. I don't think so. Um, the it's it's a very small uh, segment of our population that actually gives to political campaigns. It's it's not a diverse uh, group. Uh, not a diverse group, but uh, it's a it's a certainly a well healed group. When we're talking about the millions of dollars, uh, John, involved in this, we're talking about campaign finance here. Uh, it will continue our conversation with Ben Wilcox, the research director at Integrity Florida. Also, John Kennedy, the political reporter at the Palm Beach Post. Uh, stick with us. We're going to talk more about uh, campaign finance as well as decisions at the ballot box this fall and how they could wind up in the state budget next year. This is Decision Florida from Florida Public Radio. From WLRN Public Media in Miami and Florida Public Radio, this is Decision Florida. Are you a campaign donor? Have you given money to a campaign or a political action committee? We're talking about the campaign 2016 and the dollars it takes. Join us at 305-995-1800 on social media, hashtag Decision Florida. I'm Tom Hudson. 
And I'm John Davis from WGCU in Fort Myers. Uh, ben Wilcox with Integrity Florida is still with us. I, I had mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago um, Integrity Florida and the Leroy Collins Institute's uh, 2015 report uh, looking at the impact of, of campaign finance, finance reforms that had been passed uh, a few years prior. And uh, it was interesting because we were looking at increasing the uh, amount that individuals can contribute to campaigns um, uh, at the state level. But then uh, at the local level over the last 20 years, there were four cities and four counties in the state that had actually taken steps to reduce individual campaign contributions. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that report's findings. What were the, I guess, converse goals at the statewide level versus the local level, and, and have they worked out? Well, the, the goals at the statewide level were to allow more money to flow directly to candidates' campaigns. And I, I think that's what we want we really want to see because we want to be able to see the money that the candidate is taking from, uh, you know, someone. And also we want to see how the candidate's spending the money. And then we can hold that, that candidate accountable for who they've taken money from and how they're, they're spending their money. But when you encourage the money to go to other sources where uh, contributions are unlimited, uh, you, you tend to lose that kind of transparency and you you can't hold the candidates accountable for, you know, who, how they're raising and spending the money. Uh, at the local level, the the uh, cities and counties in Florida that have reduced campaign contributions, we found that it did reduce the costs of campaigns, hmm. but made uh, them less expensive. Then made the costs of campaigns less expensive, but. The the kind of the downside to that or p- potential trouble is that you're, you're encouraging these committees to come in and that can raise the unlimited amounts of money and they can attack a candidate with uh, negative advertising and because the candidate is limited in what, what they're able to raise, in some cases in Florida, they reduced the limit to you know $250 uh, in what you can raise in a contribution. Uh, then that candidate is at a disadvantage in responding to an attack ad that is financed by a committee that has uh, the capability of raising unlimited amounts of money. I want to bring John Kennedy in now, longtime Florida political reporter based in Tallahassee uh, for the Palm Beach Post. John, you've covered a lot of different campaigns. Uh, Ben Wilcox with Integrity Florida used a word uh, a couple of moments ago that was uh, caught my ear, accountability. Uh, Is there accountability in the campaign finance system in Florida? Well, it's pretty hard to track. Um, you have, even at the, the state legislative level, you have a lot of political spending committees where each uh, candidate tends to have a quasi-independent committee that he has some command over, and that committee can give money in support of his campaign and also share money with other committees. So it really is uh, – it's been likened to this Russian doll uh, situation <laughs> where you have, you know, right. nesting money pots that uh, it, it's very hard to determine who, who is the original source of this funding. Let's go to the phone calls here, 305-995-1800 statewide in Florida. This is Decision Florida. Have you written a check? Uh, have you contributed, even volunteered for a campaign in this election cycle or past election cycles? What did you expect for that contribution? Did you receive it? Let's go to uh, Paul in South Florida. Paul, welcome to Decision Florida. Go ahead. Yes, uh, hi. I've contributed to, to political campaigns in the past, 
I, when I contributed about 10 years ago, it was limited to $200. Apparently, it's two, 250 Why can't corporations be limited to 250 and then but encourage their employees to contribute 250 each? To me, that would be a fairer system. The corporations wouldn't control it. Same thing for union members. Well, union members could, could vote individually, but not as a group. Paul, we'll uh, put that to Ben Wilcox with Integrity Florida. How about that uh, kind of of individual limitation onto uh, corporations? Well, I mean, that's what we, we used to ban corporations and unions from making political contributions, but that's what the whole Citizens United um, Supreme Court decision was all about overturning. Right. Uh, so um, as long as uh, the courts have, have made it very difficult for us to regulate campaign financing. Uh, so, you know, while we limit what uh, can be contributed directly to a candidate, uh, you know, there's still just so many avenues for unlimited contributions that we basically live in a world of unlimited contributions. We, ne- we need to, to try to empower the candidates uh, to raise the money and then uh, be transparent about how, who they're taking money from and how they're spending it. It's a little bit like perhaps asking a teenager to respect the uh, uh, to respect the, the the bedtime or the time to come home, isn't it? A little bit, John Kennedy. I mean, are we asking too much for uh, politicians who are in office to more highly police themselves or become even more transparent? Too well, much I to think ask. It is. Yeah, it probably is too much to ask. I mean, uh, they're in charge of writing the rules, and they write the rules that allow them to do the actions that, uh, you know, help advance their campaigns. And uh, I don't think anybody is going to uh, step forward, um, you know, in a, in a kind of a high moral ground and, uh, and, and and take action that would be more transparent, more, you know, accountability, more disclosure than than is necessary. Uh, we're going to go back to the phones here for Decision Florida, 305-995-1800 in Miami. Chris joins the program. Go ahead, Chris, your thoughts. Uh, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Good afternoon, rather. Uh, I, for the very first time, donated personally to a uh, candidate this year. And uh, I'm an NPA, as you had a few others on earlier. But this uh, this personal donation went to a Democrat and then I'm personally working for a local candidate who happens to be a Republican. Uh, I also, several years, have been. It's like a House divided yeah. license plate cover is what I'm <laughs> is what I'm hearing there, Chris. <laughs> well, I'm I'm more interested in the people than their party, and uh, I'm, I like people. I like I like people a lot more than I like party affiliations, which is why I'm not a party affiliated. But the the other cause I give to is for in, in my industry I. We are really strongly involved with uh, property rights for individuals and the ability to uh, to have property, to own property, and, of course, to maintain, hopefully, the mortgage interest deduction and things of that nature. So I do donate to a uh, national as well as a state political action committee that, uh, that is concerned with property rights. And, Chris, just so I'm clear, you donate at the individual level, not through a, a corporation or a business that you own? That is correct. Yeah. First time uh, donor there, uh, Ben Wilcox. Uh, interesting, as we spoke earlier about the, the money class in Florida and the sources of these dollars uh, have been historic sources. And there, there hasn't been a whole lot of diversity, despite the increased diversity within the state of Florida and the uh, registered uh, registered voter ranks. That's right. Uh, you know, we're, we're still seeing the money coming from pretty much the same old sources. And, and the big money really comes from 
uh, you know, corporate interests that have, uh, you know, want to see public policy uh, results in Tallahassee. And and as Chris mentioned, uh, you know, he's donating to causes that uh, are impacting business and real estate, the mortgage tax deduction, which is a huge uh, incentive, of course, for home ownership and, and real estate transactions, which helps uh, a lot of different industries, construction, real estate, home furnishings. Uh, is there anything wrong with that, Ben, for, for a uh, political donor to uh, essentially hope for, if not expect some support from a candidate or an issue that uh, that they're interested in? Well, that, that's what drives our campaign finance system. Right. Um, people are, you know, looking for uh, candidates who are sympathetic to, you know, the causes that they want to advance. And so uh, that's who they support financially. And, and Ben Wilcox, uh, just real quickly, uh, with the campaign uh, contribution limits that we have, whether, whether for individuals or contributions, uh, do you think if those were lower, it might encourage more individuals to make contributions? Um, just to say, for instance, I, I had $50 that I maybe wanted to contribute to somebody, but I'm looking at these super PACs and how much money that they're able to raise and just saying, gosh, my $50 is going to do a lot more for me in my pocket than it is for this campaign. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think it, it discourages small donors when they see these large uh, contributions going into um, races. Uh, we're, we're experimenting with a little system here in, in, in Tallahassee where um, we passed by voter initiative a, a small, what we call a small donor refund program for city government races. Uh, under this program, if you make a contribution of up to $25 to a political – to a candidate for city commission, you're entitled to a refund from the city government for that $25. <laughs> so the, the idea is to try to encourage more small donor contributions and, and get people who haven't been involved in financing campaigns in the past involved. Isn't that effectively public financing of a campaign, Ben? That is that is public financing, and hmm. we're experimenting with it here in Tallahassee. And, and real quickly, just before we go to the phones, in, in these cities and counties that over the last 20 years have been reducing individual contributions to local race campaigns, um, uh, I'm wondering if that has been a boon for incumbents who presumably wouldn't need to spend as much as a newcomer just to get their name recognition out there. John, what do you think? Well, incumbents always have a, a strong advantage with that, and... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that is. Uh, it, 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 if you're tilting the table at all, it may be uh, tilted toward the uh, incumbent in that case. Let's go to the phones. Uh, Robert from Newport Ritchie, uh, welcome to Decision Florida. You're on the air. Uh, hi, um, I, I donated to two candidates so far in this election. Uh, the first one, of course, being Bernie Sanders. I'm upper middle class, and uh, I enjoyed, you know, sending out 27 when a crucial moment would come. And of course, uh, 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 he lost out. So uh, now I've shifted to doing the same exact thing with Joe Stalin. And I'd like to give you a perspective of what's going on. I'm 66 years old. Robert, sorry for the interruption. It's it's a little difficult to hear you. So speak up a little bit and uh, oh, quickly your right. question or your point, sir. All right. Well, my point is that the uh, the millennium, uh, they're basically uh, rejecting both parties. And many of the people I know in the spiritual have uh, already uh, left and either gone independent or gone uh, Green Party in that particular genre of people. And um, anyway, I think that's sort of under the radar right now, and it's going to become very apparent after the election. 
Thanks, Robert. I appreciate that. It is a little difficult to hear, but just to reiterate, he's, it sounds like what he's saying is that the younger voters, the millennials, feel alienated from this two-party system uh, and, and just really aren't aligning themselves with either the Democratic or Republican Party ideologies. Talking about campaign finance here on Decision Florida with our two guests, Ben Wilcox from uh, Integrity Florida and John Kennedy, political reporter from the Palm Beach Post. And you are listening to Decision Florida from WLRN in Miami. This is Florida Public Radio. You know, John, um, uh, from campaign finance to state finance now, we learned this week that money coming into the state of Florida will fall short of projected spending next summer as well as for the year after that. Uh, This, after a lot of flush years here in the Sunshine State when it comes to Tallahassee and the state budget, the incoming Speaker of the House, in fact, uh, said after he heard that, he said Florida has a spending problem. I think it's clearer from this presentation. It, the, and you looked at the numbers on the chart, so we have a spending problem, and we're going to have to go in and reassess what we are spending money on and figure out what's essential services to the taxpayers and the, and the people of the state of Florida. And I think that without question I can say um, that unequivocally there is tons of things in this budget that need to be cut, should be cut, and will be cut. Richard Corcoran, the incoming Speaker of the House, uh, the entire state legislature is up for election this election cycle. John Kennedy, how early on is this warning from state economists? Well, it's uh, basically for the coming year, we have enough money. Uh, But it's one of those things where the uh, shortfall is going to become evident in 2018. However, to uh, stave that off, you better start budget cutting next year is the message uh, coming from state economists. And that's something that uh, Richard Corcoran, the incoming speaker, is, is, is very much embracing. Uh, Corcoran is somebody who uh, is a, a strong fiscal conservative from the get-go. So uh, this uh, dire warning from uh, economists, to some degree, plays into his overall theme of uh, belt tightening and uh, slashing a lot of what he would consider to be uh, unnecessary state programs. And, you know, I'm thinking about these these reoccurring spending items that we know are going to take a big chunk out of the budget every year, things like education, things like health care. What options do lawmakers have uh, when it comes to trimming spending? Well, it, it's always painful because you're going to wind up with a situation where, you know, the bulk of state spending goes into health and human services and education. So uh, those are areas where... Uh, you know, I think many uh, average Floridians would think there's not an awful lot of waste in those areas. However, uh, there are programs that get tucked into the budget every year by some special interest, by some lobbyist, by, you know, in favor of somebody's hometown project. And uh, those things, once they get in the budget, tend to repeat, you know, year after year after year in a budget. And uh, that is uh, something that I think Corcoran wants to go back into and try to uh, excise. Ben Wilcox with Integrity Florida. How could all this play out at the ballot box, considering a couple of things? One, the entire state legislature is up for election. Two, the legislature that's elected this year will have to make these budget decisions in 18 months. And Republicans have had a supermajority in Tallahassee in the governor's office. Well, I, I think it can, can play out at the ballot box, and we, we've already seen it in one, one, at least one race or a couple of races, I think, where uh, the issue of, of economic development subsidies ha- and, the fi- and the fact that the legislature did not um, uh, give Governor Scott the $250 million that he requested for economic development subsidies and the agency that administers them, Enterprise Florida – 
and in that's that's been made a, an issue in some of the uh, Republican legislative primaries. Uh, it's interesting that uh, incoming Speaker Corcoran has talked about uh, as one of his cost-saving measures eliminating Enterprise Florida mm-hmm. next year. Uh, and finally, John Kennedy, just less than a minute left here. Uh, first hurricane in 10 years hit the state. It was, uh, it, as hurricanes go, it was a, a relatively small one. Uh, we've got the Zika issue here in South Florida. Lots of so-called black swans. That's true. There's a lot of things that uh, state money could be uh, distracted to. Uh, Governor Scott today uh, put another $10 million toward uh, Zika fighting efforts because yep. Congress has not come up with anything. So, uh, yeah, the money can go fast. Uh, we've got to leave it there. John Kennedy, longtime political reporter in uh, the capital city of Tallahassee. He is with the Palm Beach Post. John, thanks so much for your time today. And Ben Wilcox, the research director at Integrity Florida. You can keep the conversation going. Have you donated for a candidate? Are you a swing candidate? It's at Decision Florida. That's our program for today. We invite you to join us on social media. Share your experience this political season with us. Use the hashtag DecisionFlorida. You can also download a podcast of this program at iTunes. Search for Decision Florida. Decision Florida is produced by WLRN Public Media in Miami by Julia Duba. Polly Landis is our booking producer and Jason Zabka, our technical director. With engineering help from Charles Michaels, WLRN's program director is Peter Mares. We received production help this week from WMFE in Orlando and WFSU in Tallahassee. I'm John Davis with WGCU in Fort Myers. And I'm Tom Hudson. This special program from Florida Public Radio has been a presentation of WLRN Public Media in Miami. Thanks for listening.